When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, formerly a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities and now a curious podcast about the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. The town of Washington was a ball of nervous anticipation. A man with no experience, extravagant personal behaviors, had been carried aloft to Washington to reform its wicked ways in the name of the people. The clouds were dark. The previous election had set new standards for ugliness and low behavior by the virtuous people who were asking to be entrusted with the care of the nation. The powerful in Washington were undone. Their candidate had lost. The teacups were rattling and everywhere in journals quilled pens were quivering with quiet prayers for a republic, which was to see its first president inaugurated, who was neither from Virginia or a member of the Adams family. As the president, the new president, took the oath, the comfortable worry that norms would drop during his presidency. They were already dropping in little symbolic ways from the location of the swearing-in to the lack of the hat on the new president's head. What would happen later on that March day of inauguration when Andrew Jackson opened his new White House to the people who had elected him would set the tone for one of the most transformative and unpredictable presidencies in the country's history. Our whistle stop today is March 4th, 1829. It's 11 o'clock on Inauguration Day in Washington, D.C. It's clear, but it's a little chilly, though not as cold as it had been in the previous week. The weather had been so cold, the Potomac River is still frozen. Though six presidents had been sworn in before, the ceremony for the seventh was new. It was taking place outdoors on the east portico of the Capitol instead of inside. That morning, a national salute was fired. By 10, the avenue, Pennsylvania Avenue, was crowded with carriages and people of every description, women, children, all there to see the man who had been called the people's president. He was called that for he had been elected not by the political elites, but by the voters in an election that had allowed an even greater participation by regular Americans, which, of course, we mean white men. Soon, people could not pass on Pennsylvania Avenue. The balconies along the way and porticos were filled to the brim, inside the Capitol, spectators were pressed against the windows, jostling against each other in their finery. Anxious marshals had to stretch a ship's cable across the east portico of the Capitol to keep the people from overrunning the new president. Democracy was in, John Meacham writes. Elitism was out. But this wasn't making everyone happy. Sean Willens quotes Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, who attended the swearing-in but wasn't happy about it. Stories said, the reign of King Mob seemed triumphant. This was really something new. The swarm of people and the mayhem at the White House grounds that would take place later in the day are pretty well known. But it was more than just a lot of pushing and shoving and muddy boots on the White House carpets. This was, and the overrunning and the people pressing against one another on this inaugural day, was the symbolic manifestation of a chaotic new presidency forged by the voters Uh, And it was the entry of a new president, and more so than his predecessors, was a president who claimed 
that he had been put in office by the people, and not just by the people, but by the people in opposition to the behavior of those who had previously claimed power. Why was that important? Well, it's a little bit of an echo of what's being claimed for the 45th, incoming 45th president, Donald Trump. His inauguration planners have explicitly mentioned Jackson in their uh, outline of the day, although I'm not sure they get the history on that. But there is a bigger historical point here to make, which was this was a shift in shared power in the American system when Jackson came into power. And all of the symbols and actions on that inaugural day speak to that shift. And here, let me read a little bit from Lynn Hudson Parsons' The Birth of Modern Politics, Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, and the Election of 1828. Here's what she writes. Members of Congress, more than half of whom would be chosen every two years, were power's safest repository. She's writing here about the way the framers had designed the American governing system. The president, elected every four years through an intentionally cumbersome process, by the way, intentionally cumbersome meaning the Electoral College, which Jackson would later try to abolish, didn't work. Anyway, back to our quote, Uh, an intentionally cumbersome process and removable only under extraordinary circumstances was charged with carrying out the people's will by enforcing the laws passed by the people's representatives. So the system was the people's representatives are in the House. The president carries out those laws that the president, too, might claim to be the people's representative rarely, if ever, crossed the framers mind. Jackson changed all that by the sheer force of his personality and his unerring instinct for gauging public opinion. He convinced himself that his victories in 1828 and 1832 made him, not Congress, better qualified to speak for the whole nation. No single congressman, no single senator, not even Congress itself could ever make that claim. Only a president can speak for the nation, and every successful president since Jackson has claimed to do so. This is the day that gets kicked off. Speaking for the first time for the people, officially for the people. As the stern, gaunt, 61-year-old Jackson, who still carried two bullets in his body from duels and fights on the street, made his way to the Capitol, he was dressed in mourning black, his wife Rachel having died in December of a heart attack. Though he was six foot one inches, his bad health and emotional state had cut him down to 140 pounds. He looks bowed down with grief as well as age, wrote one who attended church with him. His manner is humble and reverent and most attentive. Jackson blamed his political opponents who had made his wife Rachel an issue during the campaign, and he believed that his enemies had, quote, maligned that blessed one who is now safe from suffering and sorrow, whom they tried to put to shame for my sake. So let's backtrack on that nastiness of the election of 1828. The election of 1828 was so nasty in part because of the election of 1824, as those of you who are devotees of the original Whistle Stop and the Whistle Stop book will remember that in 1824, Jackson had won more electoral votes and arguably a plurality of the popular vote. As you know from that episode, there's some debate and reasonable skepticism. But at the time, they certainly thought, and Jackson certainly thought that he'd won the popular vote. He had been defeated in the House of Representatives when three states that had voted for him went over to Adams, along with three others that had been carried by Henry Clay. And when Adams appointed Clay Secretary of State, Jackson was outraged, and and there was accusations that it was a corrupt bargain. Clay threw his states to Jackson, and in return got the Secretary of 
state spot. Now, the charge was unfair because Clay had every good reason to back Adams. He was a longtime enemy of Jackson's. And Adams totally agreed with Clay's national economic program. But anyway, from that moment on in 1824, Jackson used the charge as the basis of his campaign for the election of 1828. And that's why Donald Cole's book on the election of 1828 is called Vindicating Andrew Jackson. The spur for Jackson's effort in 1828 coming from the corrupt bargain of 1824. But what made the election so ugly for Jackson were the attacks on his wife. And they stemmed from the charge that she was a bigamist. A little brief history. Jackson moves to Nashville in 1788. He boards with a widow named Rachel Donaldson, who had her daughter and son-in-law, Rachel and Louis Robards, under the same roof. The two had uh, separated because Louis was a bit of a hothead and jealous. Well, he was given reason to be jealous when Rachel showed an interest in this new fellow, Jackson. Lewis bails and leaves for Kentucky. But then at one point returns, Rachel flees to Natchez, Mississippi, taking Jackson along for protection. Word came to her that Lewis Robards had obtained a divorce, and so Rachel and, and Andrew Jackson married. But then they discovered that Robards ha- that, that Lewis Robards had not uh, been officially divorced. So that was a problem. The Jacksons were living together, and in theory, she was married to two people. Uh, they remarried in 1793 when the divorce became final. And basically, the accusation against Jackson from the Adams side was that he was living in sin. Rachel Jackson, who was quite religious and had been basically cocooned from all of this, soon after Jackson's victory, discovered one of the pamphlets defending her against the accusations of bigamy. She was undone by this. Already frightened by the idea of going to Washington with Jackson, she um, was uh, so emotionally overwrought. Uh, And a heart attack soon followed. Jackson blamed basically Adams and then Henry Clay and the other opponents of his during the election of 1828. And that's why, as a result, Jackson refused to pay the customary courtesy call on the outgoing president, Adams. So he enters his new office in mourning and depressed. Indeed, the day he left Nashville for Washington, it was the day he had made arrangements for his wife's tomb. So he made the trip anyway, traveled by steamboat to Washington, and affixed on the side of that steamboat were a series of brooms. Donald Trump promises to drain the swamp of Washington. Andrew Jackson had his own saying, or the, or the, a saying that was affixed to him. Actually, he didn't say it at first. And this was that he was going to Washington, Washington to clean out the giant Aegean stable. And the Aegean stable, this comes from the, the story of Hercules, who had the task to clean out in a single day all the stables of King Aegeus. I think, I think that's how you pronounce it. Aegeus? Aegeus? I'll get letters and I'll let you know on the next one. Anyway, the king owned more cattle and horses than anyone else in Greece, and the Hercules had to do it in a day. The phrase became so popular and associated with Jackson that in 1828, the election tickets uh, on which presidential candidate and all the down ballot candidates were listed had some of them had a picture of just a broom at the top and and uh, with that slogan to sweep the Aegean stable. So that's why there are brooms on the... Um, steamboat that he takes to Washington. Why was there corruption? Well, okay. The big reason was that since 1812, the Whigs had disappeared. And there was basically the Jeffersonian Republicans were the only game in town in Washington. And that had become so you had a single party rule in Washington, as you know, from your uh, whistle stop on the election of 1824. Basically, 
presidential candidates were picked by King Caucus and inside a group of insiders in the Congress who picked their whoever was kind of next in line. John Meacham, uh, who wrote American Lion about Andrew Jackson, writes about Jackson's view of corruption this way. By corruption, Jackson did not mean only scandal and mismanagement. He meant it in a broader sense. In the marshalling of power and influence by a few institutions and interests that sought to profit at the expense of the whole. He was not against competition in the marketplace of goods and ideas. Like the founders, he believed in vigorous debate. And like Adam Smith, he put his faith in the capacity of free individuals to work out their destinies. But he was very much against the special deal or the selfish purpose. And he was very much in favor of his own role as defender of the many and the protector of the nation in Washington. He was intent on dismantling the kind of permanent federal establishment that had created a climate in which, in his view, insiders such as John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay could thrive no matter what the people beyond Washington wanted. So this is crucial both for the past and for our present day. The idea is if the system is corrupt in its design, then then its outcomes will be corrupt. And the people who get the fuzzy end of the lollipop are the regular people, not the people who have the cozy inside deals. The response to this by those who had profited from those inside deals or who were in jobs as a result of that system was that the virtues of the people in the jobs would protect them from the coziness of the tenure or the fact that their jobs really weren't in danger. They'd be protected by all of that by the virtue of their hearts. They were good and virtuous people, and therefore, don't be concerned that the system has become incredibly clubby. This relationship between the design of the system and how people get into it, and whether that system is virtuous in the service of the people of the country, is crucial both for the story of Jackson, but also as we see a new administration come into Washington promising to drain the swamp. Will the swamp, in fact, be drained, or will it just be merely replaced by a new system that matches the design of the old system, but just has new players in it? If the idea is that the design of the system corrupts the people, despite their internal virtue, then why should a system that goes unchanged under a new administration result ha- have any other result but then to cause corruption because the predicate of the election victory is that it's the system that is more powerful than the virtues of its occupants. This is a total different, total aside here, which is that Jackson comes to, to town on a steamboat and takes him a few, it takes qu- quite a little while to get to Washington. And religious leaders trying to minimize the adventurousness or adventuresomeness of the Jackson presidency had tried to argue him that he should be bound to the norms of Christianity, including that he shouldn't work on the Sabbath. The idea was that if he'd been elected by the rabble, the norms that would hold the president at bay might be endangered. And so you needed other norms. One of the big norms could be religion. And so the, to the extent that he maintained the strictures of his Presbyterianism, it could it would it would be a signal that he wouldn't go run running rampant. So he promised not to ride a horse on the Sabbath. I believe I'm getting this from Schlesinger's The Age of Jackson. But of course, he couldn't just stop on his way to Washington. So there was a loophole for it because if he, he wouldn't ride a horse, but if he's on a steamboat, well, you know, what can he do uh, on the Sabbath? I mean, he's not operating it. He's merely being conveyed along by it. Anyway, he's making his way to Washington and he didn't want to make a fuss by arriving. So he gets into Washington four hours before anybody notices him. And he steadfastly rejects, remember he's wearing mourning clothing, he's rejecting any parties and celebrations in his honor. He arrived in a plain carriage, two horses, followed by a single servant. And so on the one hand, you have this revolutionary who's arriving, and he goes unnoticed. John Meacham quotes Alfred Mordecai, who happened to see Jackson on his arrival. 
on his arrival. What a spectacle must this present to those who have had opportunities of seeing the entrance of European potentates into their capitals to take possession of their thrones. The point here is that, like with others who we'll hear from, uh, everything that happened in the new country, still new, our seventh president, was still being compared to the Europeans. And the fear about Jackson was real, but also ready on the shelf was the self-soothing elixir that in America, the peaceful transition of power with no pomp, no circumstance, and, and, and even though the peaceful transition of power was to someone a lot of people didn't like, that that system working was soothing proof that everything was going to be okay, and that it was still a better nation than the European nations. So Jackson, in his low-key way of arriving, the point of this episode is to use symbol to talk about the underlying notions of America that were filling up those symbols, giving them power, giving them resonance. And this one, that he arrives quietly, unassumingly, is a proof that he's not a king, easily enough said. Jackson was the first president with whom many ordinary Americans could identify, and the first to have a nickname, the nickname Old Hickory, invoked because of his stature as a tough leader of men in an age where only men, of course, could vote. His success in life personified the American frontier sturdiness and hardiness, uh, wrestling the continent from alien enemies or people, you know, obviously Europeans or enemies who were not alien because they were there before the Europeans who would claim to be Americans arrived, that is to say the Native Americans. But the idea of Jackson in himself and the new nation was white supremacy over other races. But along with that supremacy over others, there was the rise of equal opportunity for all white males, without preference for birth or education, and that though even those people could enjoy the spoils of conquest. And I'm getting that riff from Daniel Walker Howe's What Hath God Wrought? The Transformation of America, 1815 to 1848. That's uh, from the Oxford History of the United States. People were so excited <laughs> about the Jackson uh, victory that it led to uh, some insane behavior. So, for example, uh, in Philadelphia uh, on March 8th, here's a, an announcement from a news, Philadelphia newspaper in March writing about a celebration of Jackson's inauguration where some meat was sold in honor of his inauguration and the turnout in response to buying the meat was overwhelming. Here we go. We regret to learn that on Wednesday at Lombardy Gardens, where a bear and a buffalo were slaughtered and sold at 25 cents a cut in honor of the inauguration of President Jackson, so great was the concourse of persons that one of the sheds under which is a nine-pin alley, but which on Wednesday was used as a sort of cox shop, gave way, and a scene of great distress was presented. One man was killed, and many others had their bones broken and were otherwise severely injured. It is supposed that the crowd at this place of all colors and sizes was not less than 1,500. Now, that could also testify to the fact that people wanted, uh, you know, the bear and the buffalo. But it was a way in which the chaos of the Jackson inauguration didn't just happen in Washington, I am claiming. Why were people in such need of a champion? They were furious about the economic conditions that the establishment in the East had created. And here's Schlesinger on the economic roots of Jacksonianism. And this is from the age of Jackson. The Jacksonians believed that there was a deep-rooted conflict in society between the producing and the non-producing classes, farmers and laborers on the one hand, and the business community on the other. The business community was considered to hold high cards in this conflict through its networks of banks, corporations, its control of education, and the press. 
Above all, its power over the state, it was therefore able to strip the working class of the fruits of their labor. And that notion of a cabal that controls everything comes right from Donald Trump's, uh, Donald Trump's speech in which he drew connections between the elites and Goldman Sachs and the rest of it. This was before hiring so many people from Goldman Sachs to work in his administration. Jackson had no experience, and he was a hothead. That's what worried the permanent class in Washington. He knew how to kill people. Jackson did. He was good good at that. But in an age where people believed that the man of politics must have a certain set of skills and character traits, Jackson was was a frightening wild card. He had fought in half a dozen duels. He'd executed six militiamen, and during one of his uh, military campaigns, he'd quelled a mutiny by threatening to shoot a soldier in another. He'd put a judge in jail for questioning his extra-legal activities during the Battle of New Orleans. And physically, he was a mess. He coughed continually, sometimes spitting up blood because a lot of the bullets that rattled around in his body like marbles. He was such a physical mess that some of his opponents soothed themselves on the rumors that he died or they dreamt that he might kill over at any moment. Those who feared Jackson weren't just worried about his lack of experience and that he wouldn't know what to do in office. And they weren't just worried that he would resort to rough military solutions that had gotten him into glory, but also into some trouble. What worried them is that he would introduce a malignancy into the political body. And that that malignancy was, of course, known as mob rule. Here's what Henry Clay in John Meacham's American Lion, here's how he's described. Clay watched in horror from the State Department, State Department where he was working, of course, for John Quincy Adams, that the election would even be close, Clay remarked to Webster, Daniel Webster, was, quote, mortifying and sickening to the hearts of the real lovers of free government. When Jackson's victory became clear, Clay thought no greater calamity had struck the United States since we were free people. Arthur Schlesinger in The Age of Jackson writes that Daniel Webster uh, writes about Jackson this way. General Jackson will be here about the 15th of February. Nobody knows what he will do when he does come. My opinion is that when he comes, he will bring a breeze with him. Which way it will blow, I cannot tell. My fear is stronger than my hope. Washington socialite Margaret Bayard Smith wrote about that the Secretary of Navy, Samuel Southard, who had fought with Jackson during the election of 1828, looked, quote, wretched. The Secretary of the Treasury, Richard Rush, quote, totally secluded himself when uh, Margaret Bayard Smith called on Henry Clay. She found him sleeping, covered by a cloth, quote, like a black pall, and was, quote, shocked by his pale appearance. His eyes sunk in his head and his countenance sad and melancholy. On the eve of the inauguration, she reports that there are there is no gaiety, parties, or parades, only dullness and gloom. When you read any historical account of the Jackson inaugural, you will come across these wonderful letters of Margaret Bayard Smith. They are contained in a volume called The First Forty Years of Washington Society from a book published in 1906 by her grandson. The volume is really worth reading for its own sake. The politics of the time, yes, but also for the fun with the social customs. What's new? What's old? She is, it must be said. The kind of woman for whom it seems the roll-away fainting couch was designed. She is in a perpetual state of alarm in these letters. And I may be overdoing it, but there is one fabulous passage that has nothing to do with Jackson, where she complains that her son has given up the law because he's fascinated by foreign travel and what she calls the embroidered coat of secretary of legation, which is to say an, an officer employed in a foreign mission. And she has a wonderful way with words because she's a uh, successful novelist. So here, here's her talking about her son as she unloads the cupboard of woe for her friend. Oh, my friend, do you feel all I suffer? I have not the courage to go into society. I dread those satisfied countenances which will greet me and congratulate me on the fine career of my son. 
on the great success he will achieve and all those commonplaces and commonplace nonsensical ideas of people who do not understand real happiness. I thought I had prepared things for my old age. I thought I had inspired my children by dint of care and tenderness, enough affection for me to create in them a leaning towards some profession which would enable them to live honorably near us. Well, Theodore will go from one consulate to another. And when he goes to Europe, he will probably marry a woman that I do not know, and his children will be strangers to me. Now, back to the reality at hand. Later in the letters, Baird Smith, Margaret Baird Smith laments, after lamenting about a variety of things, she gets into a discussion of Jackson. And for those in the Trump camp who think that Washington elites sniff at him and his supporters, here you have the 19th century equivalent. So this is Smith describing uh, one night. We spent the evening at Dr. Sims last night. All present were Jacksonians. Dr. Sim, the most ardent and devoted, he had lately received a letter from General Jackson, which he promised to show me. I wanted to see it immediately, suspecting, as I told him, if he deferred showing, would be with the intention of correcting the orthography. Orthography being the conventional spelling system of language. So... Laughing and joking, continues the letter. Here goes. He laughed and joked on the subject very good-naturedly and about Mrs. Jackson and her pipe in the bargain. So they're laughing about Jackson's lack of ability to spell and the fact that his wife was rumored to have smoked a pipe. At the time of this letter, his wife has actually, I think, died, but maybe Smith doesn't know that she's died. Back to the letter. What change will take place in our society? How many excellent families shall we lose? I told the doctor I should cry all day long on the 4th of March. That's Inauguration Day. For my politics were governed by my heart and not my head. To dismiss Mr. Wirt, Wirt is the Attorney General. Where will he get such another man? She's talking about Jackson there. Oh, how very sorry I should be. So this is important. Smith was worried that her friend, the attorney general, would would be put out of a job and worried because that was Jackson's promise. His view had once been that it was the same as John Quincy Adams, which is to say no one should lose a job because of who they supported in the election. But those who supported Jackson had different views. Duff Green, the editor of the Jacksonian United States Telegraph, had announced his goal during the campaign itself. Jackson would, quote, reward his friends and punish his enemies through patronage. So that was just that was not just a prediction, it was a threat. What Green was trying to do is prod office holders, customs officers, marshals, postmasters, to declare for Jackson on the idea that if ja- Adams won, it would not matter who they had supported, but if Jack because they were in office and he wasn't going to kick them out. But if Jackson won, people faced dismissal unless they'd endorsed him. This is new because the old rule was basically people stayed, good men stayed in town. Uh, Jackson, though, was going, was promising to throw people out and change their jobs. And so this idea of bringing in his own people was freaking people out in the same way that Donald Trump's bringing in people from all different walks of life who haven't worked in Washington is freaking people out. Here's Daniel Webster talking about, quote, a numerous council about the president-elect. If report be true, it is a council which only makes that darker, which was darker before. So not just a new rabble-rousing president, but all these crazy people he's bringing with me. I'm having fun with Mrs. Smith, but Margaret Baird Smith, because it's fun. But there's an important point here, which is that the anti-Jacksonites were worried about what society mattered more than just the fun I'm making of it. Because as the out crowd was showing the servants which straw-filled boxes to place uh, the China in as they headed out of town, they worried that the rules of society had been the ones that had protected the notions of honor and character and virtue and patriotism. And 
Those were the norms, and those had protected democracy. Yes, of course, the country had been founded on the idea that ambition would fight ambition, and the structure of government should be designed in a way that constrains the actions of, of its participants. But the establishment also believed that the rules of society, the norms, the stuff that Mrs. Smith cared about, were the things that kept people in line. Ruffians, now in control of the tower, was a recipe for unsteadiness. Last little bit from Smith, parting shot talking about Adams. For eight years, how I did love to go to the president's house on this day. The gracious countenance that then beamed on the thronging multitude, the sweet, mild voice, the cordial pressure of the hand, I could no longer meet and therefore will not go. How much goodness and greatness that dwelt there, now shrouded in the cold and narrow grave, the home of all men. Looking bleak to the uh, inhabitants of Washington. Adams feels it's pretty bleak, too. He doesn't attend the inaugural. That's in part because uh, as much as a tax as there were on Jackson, there were plenty on Adams, including that he'd procured a woman for the Tsar of Russia while serving there as minister. Um, but that didn't matter because Adams was out and um, and the people were in. And here is how Smith describes the scene on Inauguration Day. It was not a thing of detail of a succession of small incidents. No, it was one grand whole, an imposing and majestic spectacle, and to a reflective mind, one of moral sublimity. Thousands and thousands of people, without distinction or rank, collected in an immense mass round the Capitol, silent, orderly, and tranquil, with their eyes fixed on the front of that edifice, waiting the appearance of the president in the portico. So you see Mrs. Smith in her Private journals is like many Washingtonians turning from a fear of the new crowd into uh, a possibly more generous interpretation, one that might, uh, we could imagine, get her invited to uh, those parties. Webster uh, wrote, wrote this about the inaugural day. I never saw anything like it before. Persons have come 500 miles to see General Jackson, and they really seem to think that the country is rescued from some dreadful danger. In the days leading up to the inauguration, crowds had just fired off cannons and launched into spontaneous parades, and boarding houses charged three times the going rate, and some people, because the boarding houses were filled, slept on the floor of tap rooms. That's all according to David Cole's account uh, in his book, The Presidency of Andrew Jackson. Cole also wrote that great book, Vindicating Andrew Jackson, which I mentioned earlier. A contingent of soldiers from the revolution in which Jackson had been a scout and a contingent of soldiers from the Battle of New Orleans escorted him on that inaugural morning from the National Hotel at 6th and Pennsylvania to the Capitol. Now, the revolutionary connection was important. Jackson had run for office promising to reunite the country with the themes of its founding. And, and so his Revolutionary War service, as mild as it was, was an important connection between those two. And you could hear the connection in Jackson's response to the request, to the request by the revolutionary soldiers uh, who wrote him saying, can we escort you to the Capitol? And here is how the general responded. Respected friends, your affectionate address awakens sentiments and recollections which I feel with sincerity and cherish with pride. To have... Around my person, at the moment of undertaking the most solemn of all duties to my country, the companions of the immortal Washington will afford me satisfaction and grateful encouragement. When Jackson arrived at the Capitol after being escorted by those revolutionary soldiers and those at, from the Battle of New Orleans, it was hard to get in. Here's a local account. It was ascertained that the press of the crowd on the East Front was so great as to make it almost impossible to gain admittance from that direction. And by moving to the right, the committee and the officers of the revolution and the officers of the late war, named above, entered over the parapet at the western door. 
Even there, the press was so great as to create alarm, lest someone might be thrown into the area or trodden underfoot. Jackson gets in, and he appears at noon, and at that time a roar comes from the crowd. He is without a hat, and attendees describe all the men in unison removing their hats. Jackson bowed to the crowd, the servant bowing before his sovereigns, as Donald Cole put it. It was, in a sense, the perfect symbol for the moment of confusion about which direction America was going in. Was he bowing to the duty handed him to by the people? Was he bowing to the office? Was he bowing to the continuity of government? Was he bowing to the American experiment? Not a king, but a general and a servant? Or was he bowing to the mandate to make radical change on behalf of the people who were looking up at him and shouting? Jackson's inaugural speech was short, just a dozen paragraphs. He was not a great orator. orator. Few could hear him anyway. There was no amplification. There was, quote, and this is again Smith describing the scene, an almost breathless silence, and the multitude was still, listening to catch the sound of his voice, though it was so low as to be heard only by those nearest to him. Jackson didn't call for unity, as Jefferson famously had, and he did not try to rally the people. The speech was, in the style of the day, written in the backwards-running language that conveyed solemnity, but made it very hard to understand what the devil he was saying. Here is Jackson. Fellow citizens, about to undertake the arduous duties that I have been appointed to perform by the choice of a free people. I avail myself of this customary and solemn occasion to express the gratitude which their confidence inspires and to acknowledge the accountability which my situation enjoins. While the magnitude of their interests convinces me that no thanks can be adequate to the honor they have conferred, it admonishes me that the best return I can make is the zealous dedication of my humble abilities to their service and their good. As the instrument of the federal constitution, it will devolve on me for a stated period to execute the laws of the United States, to superintend their foreign and con their confederate relations, to manage their revenue, to command their forces, and by communications to the legislature to watch over and to promote their interests generally. And the principles of action by which I shall endeavor to accomplish this circle of duties, it is now proper for me to explain. In reverse, the sentences do come in such order that moonwalking in the speech's service is an, is an image not impossible to consider. So anyway, that's what he sounded like. And though the throng was there testifying to the elevation by the people and the power that that elevation had given Jackson, he was defensive and careful to promise that he wouldn't overrun his situation or his or his new job. And so he says, in administering the laws of Congress, I shall keep steady in view the limitations as well as the extent of the executive power trusting thereby to discharge the functions of my office without transcending its authority. So he gets that the elites are not wrong in being freaked out that while he may not be a king, he may be the other thing that the founders worried about, which is, an, which is a tool of the mob. Or, if not a tool of the mob, a person who acts outside his virtue, knowing that he can because the mob is behind him. But Jackson did promise himself that he would, uh, uh, he, he pledged himself to the, quote, task of reform, which, quote, would require the correction of those abuses that had corrupted the freedom of elections and had placed power in unfaithful or incompetent hands. So he finishes the speech, takes the oath of office from Chief Justice Marshall, presses the Bible to his lips. And now we return to Smith for her uh, an account of the event when the inaugural address is over. Even Europeans, here we go again mentioning the Europeans, must have acknowledged that a free people collected in 
their might, silent and tranquil, restrained solely by a moral power without a shadow around of military force, was majesty, rising to sublimity and far surpassing the majesty of kings and princes. So if people were worried about Jackson, there was a common thing they could rally to, which was the successful transfer of power and the symbols of the new country, which were in elevation. And every time those were elevated successfully, people felt like the Republic, which was in danger by the election of Jackson, could withstand and withhold. And so that's why this day of mayhem that ultimately happens later at the White House is so important, because it's a question of what norms are rolling, what norms are ruling, what norms are in place, and are those norms strong enough to stop the passions that people worried would rule, would ruin the government. And so the successful carrying off of the first part of the ceremony is a sign to Mrs. Smith and others that the norms are holding. The White House had been open for the day, and the stewards knew to expect a big crowd. They set up three long tables for food in the East Room, not customary, but in recognition of the big crowd. There were large quantities of lemonade that were put out, and there were also there was also orange punch, into which those bowls was sloshed some whiskey. Cakes and pies and breads were lifted out of their tin pans, and ice cream was brought up from the straw in which it was packed in the ice house in the West Wing. It was orderly at first. Jackson had been delayed as he rode his gray horse from the um, from the ceremony, but he uh, got to the White House through the crowd, spent the first hour or so with the elites, and then all hell broke loose. And here I, re- I uh, turn to the President's House, uh, a wonderful two-volume set about the White House written by uh, William uh, Seal. When the elite vanguard had passed, great numbers of people, the elite vanguard who were meeting with Jackson, great numbers of people who came who were readily termed at the time rabble. They joined the push into a house that had once been forbidden to them. Inside, the eager callers boldly roamed the shadowy interior, seeking Andrew Jackson. Within an hour, so many feet could be felt in the trembling of the wooden floors. The crowd poured into the Oval Saloon through its one hall door. To leave the room, one had to go out the windows onto the south portico or through the only other door, that into the adjoining parlor on the west, which led to the state dining room. The tendency of the stream was not to go out to the porch, but to remain inside. As the crowd thickened, it became more unruly in the Oval Drawing Room, where he had retreated from his admirers. President Jackson was pressed against the wall and began gasping for want of air. Now, uh, some of Jackson's aides realized this and uh, fought through to him and locking arms created a barrier, giving him room. Slowly, they drew him back through a window onto the south portico, then hurried him down the stair to the ground, lifted him onto a coach, and President Andrew Jackson was rushed through the gates and off to his quarters at the hotel. Few realized the president had left. The marshals, who did who did know, no longer assumed responsibility, and no one had shown the foresight to call in a sufficient number of police. Masses of people continued to pour in from the streets. At about three o'clock, Mrs. Smith, you see here, Mrs. Smith is quoted in this book, too. She's in every Jackson book because her writing is so fun. At this point, uh, three o'clock, Mrs. Smith and her party rose from their naps and thinking that the inaugural crowd would be smaller, went to pay their respects. Quote, but what a scene did we witness, she wrote. The majesty of the people had disappeared and a rabble, a mob of boys, Negroes, women, children, scrambling, fighting, romping. What a pity. What a pity. To draw the people from the house, the butlers put wash tubs full of punch out in the fresh air. Part of the crowd pushed through the open window 
of the Oval Drawing Room and down the South Stairs, the staterooms were still crammed with people of every character and every class when the last finally departed and when the gates were closed behind them. It is not known. Three days later, the local paper, the Washington City Chronicle, wrote, We regret to say that the president's hospitality on this occasion was in some measure misapplied. The disorder was considerable. As many were admitted, perhaps unavoidably, that certainly ought not to have been there. There is something due to the dignity of the presidency as well as the character of the nation on such occasions. Well, it was not, that dignity was not maintained by the noisy and disorderly rabble in the president's house. Why were they noisy and disorderly and rabble-rousing? Was it just because they were imbued with the bilious clouds of democratic enthusiasm? Was it that they were there finally embracing that which had been denied them by the elites and their guilt gates that kept regular people from merely participating in the warmth of the national house? No, they were trying to get jobs. They were, many of them were office seekers, a horde of swamp dwellers. This wasn't reform. They turned the inaugural reception into a near riot, demolishing the furnishings and, and uh, trampling the lawn because they wanted jobs. They wanted the same patronage and inside dealing that Jackson had supposedly tried to turn out. Contemporary observers were embarrassed about this. Quote, the throng that pressed on the president before he was fairly in office, soliciting rewards in a manner so destitute of decency and of respect for his character in office, was how a, a, a New England Jacksonian wrote about it. It was a disgraceful reproach to the character of our countrymen. So here we have a situation where the symbolic overrunning of the White House was not a symbol of the people sharing uh, uh, in the glory of the first president to claim that he was truly their representative, or I, or I should say an agent of their will, but it was the first situation where we had a presidency based on reform and the will of the people that almost instantaneously mimicked the system that it was intending to replace. It wasn't reform, it was a chance for people to get theirs. Even the pro-Jackson journalist Amos Kendall couldn't help observing that uh, what these people thronging the White House really wanted was, quote, the privilege of availing themselves of the very abuses with which we charge our adversaries. So this is a more interesting parallel to watch for when Donald Trump is inaugurated. It is, is the celebration for the nation, because that's what his presidency will be about, or will his inauguration be a celebration of those who brought him into office? And will the symbolism match a similar inside trajectory? That is to say, he won't seek to represent the country more fairly, but simply hook his people up into the federal machine for their own personal advantage. We've already seen him reverse his campaign pledge to keep lo uh, lobbyists and big donors. He said he wouldn't have them in his administration. He now does. So is he going to drain the swamp or simply refill it with his own folk? That's the historical question posed by what happened with Jackson and what happened as symbolized by that famous overrunning of the White House. An anti-Jackson newspaper did a little concern trolling, trying to use Jackson's promise to keep him from filling slots with mere political hacks. And you might recognize the voice of this editorial. It matches the concern troll tone of Trump editorials in the Washington Post and New York Times. A very few days will suffice to disclose the true interpretation of that passage, wrote the paper, uh, referring to Jackson's call for reform. As we have said before, no one expects President Jackson to fill vacant offices 
with anybody's own friends, but we trust that the general will not, as some seem to suppose, turn out of office capable persons to make room for those who only whose only merit, besides that of supporting the election of General Jackson, is that they want office and clamorously demand it. We hope to see General Jackson resist the attempts to dictate to him his course in this matter, by which we su- suspect he has been already much annoyed and prove his determination not to be influenced in his official duty by that party spirit, the evils of which, in his celebrated letter to President Monroe, he so feelingly and truly portrayed. So in other words, General Jackson, you talk about reform. Don't go becoming the thing you wanted to kick out. The newspapers also contained early accounts after the inauguration of a, of an anti, of a permanent anti-Jackson movement. We live in partisan times today in which there's a permanent organized opposition to the incumbent. And in that sense, we're putting ourselves in touch with our early heritage. In fact, one of the newspaper accounts talks about how one of Jackson's opponents prophesied that the present incumbent, like his predecessor, meaning John Quincy Adams, is to leave the presidential chair four years hence. So that is the early 19th century equivalent of Mitch McConnell's desire in the early part of the Obama administration to keep make him a one-term president. Uh, here is the here's what it sounds like when you have um, a permanent opposition in the New York Daily Advertiser. Here's how a anti-Jacksonian reviewed his speech as a composition inaugural speech as a composition. This document is beneath criticism. If intended to contain a comprehensive survey of national policy and the principles of the Constitution, it is barren and meager. As an ex- exhibition of the learning and talents of a statesman and a scholar, it is far below mediocrity. There is not a single mark of genius or talent or scholarship in the performance, nor any greater appearance of an acquaintance with the principles of the Constitution or the concerns of government than we might naturally expect from an ordinary citizen who has been accustomed to read the weekly newspapers or who had taken the least active interest in national affairs. While we're on the subject of newspapers, a quick aside, this is the Richmond Inquirer and gives you some sense of the pace of change, technology at the time. This is the beginning of the Richmond Inquirer's review of the inaugural address. In laying President Jackson's address before our readers, it is impossible not to offer a first and passing compliment to our excellent and indefatigable mail contractor, Mr. Porter. Though it was delivered in Washington on Wednesday at 12 o'clock, meaning the address, yet printed copies of it were brought to this city by express at half past three o'clock on Thursday morning. That is to say, within 15 hours and a half, we understand that Mr. Porter has arranged similar relays of horses from this city to Charleston. This exertion to lay the message of a new president before an anxious people demands the most respectful acknowledgement at our hands. So one final thought here about patronage before concluding. A year later, Jackson delivers his first address to Congress, and in it, he makes good on the reform promises in the inaugural address to change the system. And he essentially sets the terms for those serving in government to um, basically arguing that none of them have a special certain expertise and that the jobs were ones that anyone could do. And so let's listen to Jackson for a minute because it it sounds familiar. And this notion of experience and what's required for the presidency or the cabinet posts is obviously one 
that is much in mind, but that also ties to this notion of if an office is easy and anyone can do it, you can also bring in all your own folks and have them fill the jobs, which has not just a maybe good for the office, but it also helps you feather their nests and keep yourself surrounded by people who owe you. Here's Jackson in his address to Congress talking about this notion. There are perhaps few men who can for any great length of time enjoy office and power without being more or less under the influence of feelings unfavorable to the faithful discharge of their public duties. Their integrity may be proof against improper considerations immediately addressed to themselves, but they are apt to acquire a habit of looking with indifference upon the public interests and of tolerating conduct from which an unpracticed man would revolt. Get it? An unpracticed man would revolt from from that conduct which had cocooned the ethically sour who'd been stuck in Washington. So it's the unpracticed man who can spy quickly the failures in Washington. Office is considered as a species of property, and government rather as a means of promoting individual interests than as an instrument created solely for the service of the people. Corruption in some and in others, a perversion of correct feelings and principles, divert government from its legitimate ends and make it an engine for the support of the few at the expense of the many. The duties of all public offices are officers are, or at least admit, of being made so plain and simple that men of intelligence may readily qualify themselves for their performance. And I cannot but believe that more is lost by the long continuance of men in office than is generally to be gained by their experience. I submit, therefore, to your consideration whether the efficiency of the government would not be promoted and official industry and integrity better secured by a general extension of the law which limits appointments to four years. This is an argument that not only can anybody do the job, that's what this notion of so plain and simple that men of intelligence and may ready, readily qualify themselves, but also this notion that it's not just easy for them to do, but that, that, that only the unpracticed man can stay on the lookout for corruption. So Jacksonians called this rotation in office, but Jackson's critics called it the spoil system. And that name has stuck ever since. Jackson was restrained at some times, but in his private opinions of people, he was often incredibly prickly. And he had frequent tirades that kept his advisors hopping. So this is the question of the, the, the Jackson presidency and Jackson the man. Would it be characterized by the calm restraint of the inaugural address that day in which Jackson talked about the limitations put on him by the Constitution? Or would it be characterized by the mad rush across the carpets in the White House of that afternoon? A similar set of questions attends the inauguration of the 45th president this January. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcast at slate.com or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank, who helps wean me of my recording innovations that make your ears burn. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who we're happy is with us in this new administration. He is not only indispensable, but at home among elites as well as the good folk of the heartland. Thanks also to Izzy Road for helping me read through all those PDFs with the smeared typeface of old newspapers which weary an old man's eyes i'll be back in two weeks with another edition of whistle stop i'm john dickerson of face the nation 